Hello, thank you for visiting the podcast of the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you haven't already, feel free to visit our audio archive at vineyardcampbellsville.org or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. And now here is this week's message. Why church matters. Why church matters. This is a um, uh, this is really, I think, profound to the body of the church to really grasp the whole idea of why church matters. And before I go any further, I just panned across. Um, we have like a 25-year-old. Stand up, Alex. <laughs> Let's all celebrate with Alex. He bought a house this week. Okay. But those things are really big deals, you guys. Really big deals. Uh, and um, we celebrate with each other. 29 years ago, after I'd preached on a Sunday morning, we were having uh, lunch at, the, uh, at our house uh, on Sunday afternoon. And um, I had told some story during the course of my sermon. And we made reference to that over the dinner table. And my daughter, Summer, profoundly said, at age four, by the way, she said, Dad, were you preaching or telling the truth? (laughs) So I just need to be perfectly honest with you this morning. And I'm going to try to tell you some truth that I I think, (laughs) okay, I don't preach as much now as I try to tell the truth. Maybe, maybe I'll say some things that will help you this morning. Maybe not. Why church matters. I personally now have absolutely no memory of life in any way that's not connected to the organized church. But I'll also tell you that my understanding has changed dramatically over the last 15 years and even more dramatically over the last five years when it comes to the idea or the understanding of why church matters. Uh, Some of you in the room know me well and some of you know me just a little bit and others are barely acquaintances and there are a few in the room that I've never met at all. Let me give you just a little bit of background to my personal grid. We all talk, speak, and live by our own grid, right? I was born, (laughs) no, I wasn't born in Alabama. (laughs) Uh, I was the youngest child (laughs) of a hyper-conservative pastor's family. Uh, My father was the product of a really tough, poor boxing family. Uh, My father was a uh, uh, World War II veteran. He rode uh, the whole Enterprise um, aircraft carrier group through the entire Pacific campaign, and he was tough and had six battle stars. And after getting out of the Navy, he went through to a really rigid dispensational Bible college. And I just need to tell you, we lived at the church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. 
And now I'm going to get into the little remote things. Circle meetings. <laughs> Anybody remember those? You have to be older to remember those, I guess. Circle meetings and youth groups and revivals and church camps and gospel meetings and Bible studies. And how about this one? Bible bowl competitions. Anybody remember those? Yeah, those are the things where you prepare and you study so that you'll know more than the other kids. So you can just win that super Christian sash in the trophy, you know. <laughs> All of it. All of it. That's my grid. That's where I came from. I will tell you that the constant activity really did keep me engaged and occupied with the Bible. But somehow, uh, by and large, it really didn't engage my heart, at least the way that I thought it should. So I started searching, really, honestly, not even knowing what I was looking for. I remember the first year that Candy and I were married, I was pastoring a little church on, like it was the only place on one of those one-mile blocks in Indiana, way up in the corn country and the, and the hog country. And uh, Candy and I were pastoring this little church, and, and I can't tell you, over and over and over again, we used to say to each other, there has to be more to it than this. There has to be more to it than this. And this is one of the most significant things I discovered. Please try to get this. Jesus is about this life more so than the afterlife. Now that may fly in the face of some of the things that you've heard and studied at the hellfire and brimstone camp meetings and that kind of thing. But I want you to understand that Jesus is about this life more so than the afterlife. Now, I understand we have several audiences here. There's new believers. There's lifetime believers. There are seekers um, who aren't even sure they want to sign on, okay? And I understand where you are, okay? Uh, people in this room who have been blessed by the church and people in this room who've been hurt by the church and people who've been enlivened by the message of Jesus and others who have just repeatedly, week after week, been bored to tears with the message that they've heard. But let me really emblazon this truth on all of your minds or at least urge you to thoughtfully consider that Jesus is about this life more so than the life to come. So we're going to examine some scripture this morning, and if you want to turn in your Bible or look it up on your iPhone or uh, maybe even read it up here if you want to, we're going to look at a passage from Ephesians, the first chapter, verses 18 to 23, and while you're turning there, let me just give you a little background. The book of Ephesians is called a prison epistle. Now, if that sounds like religious language, all that means is that this was written while Paul was in prison, okay? And this was about 30 years after Jesus had already ascended into heaven. So this was written between 60 and 62 AD. The entire book was written to encourage believers to walk fruitfully. And that might be some religious language that some of you have not been exposed to. He wanted us to produce good things with our life, okay? He wrote this book so that we would walk as fruit-bearing followers of Jesus. 
and also to serve in unity, do it together, okay, and to love each other in the midst of a whole environment of persecution that the church was enduring at that time. So let's examine this scripture and we'll go from there. I'm just going to read it to you once and we'll go back and refer to it a few times. I pray, now so far, this is, I know we're a few verses in here. Paul just had been thanking God for the Ephesian people, had really been complimentary of them up to this point. And then he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, comma, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Let's stop just for a second. He appointed him to be the head over everything for the church. Which is his body? I think what the Apostle Paul is trying to do here is to introduce our hearts to who Jesus is. Now, I'll walk through the office this week and uh, I just asked the staff, I said, why do you think the Apostle Paul talked about the eyes of your heart? And I think Kimbra came up with just a wonderful explanation of why Paul said, I want to enlighten your hearts. And she said this, the eyes of the heart, not just the eyes of the body. She said, the heart has a deeper understanding than the head and the mind. Give it up for Kimber. Paul asks or he prays that the eyes of our heart will be enlightened so that you may know the hope to which he's called to. So here's a point. Know your own heart. Why do you think that this imprisoned apostle would pray that we would be enlightened? Because at least from Paul's perspective, the Ephesian church as much as they loved Jesus, as much as he complimented them and bragged on them and thanked God for them, they still didn't get it. They just didn't know their own heart, which may be another way of just saying they didn't know who they were. These friends of his had accepted Jesus. They'd heard the whole story. They had uh, uh, probably uh, walked with people who even had contact with Jesus. They accepted Jesus. They were walking the walk. They were trying to put this whole thing together. And Paul was complimenting. And still he can say to them, uh, you just don't get it yet. 
Can anyone in the room relate to that? Walked with Jesus a long time. Walked the walk. Produced some fruit. Know a whole lot of stuff. And the bottom line is, I just don't get it. Okay, I think there's a few of us in the room. Well, let me tell you, you, we, okay, we're in good company. All of these Ephesians whose names we don't know didn't get it. But let me spend just a couple of minutes talking about some names from the scripture that you do know who apparently just didn't get it. Over in the 10th chapter of Matthew, and you don't need to turn there because I'm going to blast through this passage. Over in the 10th chapter of Matthew, the scripture says, And he called to him the 12 disciples, and they gave him authority over unclean spirits. I'm going to blast through this, okay? To cast them out and to heal every disease and every infirmity. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out, charging them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and preach as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons. That's who Jesus started his church with. And I suppose that the most famous of the twelve disciples was Simon Peter, who apparently was the first one to actually realize who Jesus was. And I thought this is, this is a side note, but I think it's interesting. I think this, he is the first one who occasioned the only pun that Jesus is on record of ever having made <laughs> when he said that Peter, whose name means rock in Greek, was the rock he was going to found his church on. So even Jesus liked puns. Bobby Spangler would be proud. And there were also uh, Peter's brother Andrew and Zebedee's two sons, James and John. Another one named James and another Simon. Thaddeus, Bartholomew were among them, whoever they were. And Matthew, the tax collector. And Philip, who was from Peter's hometown of Bethsaida. Uh, Thomas the doubter. We always tag that, Thomas the doubter, right? And Judas Iscariot, of course, who uh, was in the garden. This actually sounds romantic when you uh, say it. He was in the garden by the moonlight. And he went up and affectionately kissed his friend on the cheek. Which was a kiss of betrayal, of course. And I also think, at least from the scriptures, that probably Thomas was the last person to touch Jesus other than those who touched Jesus to inflict pain upon him. But those were the people that Jesus started his church with. I'm sorry, I got on a rabbit trail there. And as Matthew names them anyway, these are the ones that Jesus started his church with. And we don't know a whole lot about them. And, and I know we would like to know more so that we could try to at least emulate some of their stuff. But it seems that they were all Jews, uh, presumably most of them were, and they had pretty bad press over the centuries. By and large, though, it seems that they probably deserved the bad press. Uh, on the night of the arrest, uh, for instance, 
not one of them apparently had raised a finger to defend their friend except for Peter. Of course, he grabbed the centurion's sword and he cut off someone's ear. And, and uh, yeah, you talk about making a bad situation worse. If it had been for Jesus just really stepping in and say, hey, you really need to cool it. Uh, this situation could have gotten really out of hand right there in the garden. And here's a thought. He'd walked with him for three years. Jesus' message was always a message of peace and love and compassion and self-giving. And Peter draws a sword and cuts somebody's ear off. To me, it's pretty obvious that Peter had heard Jesus, but he still didn't get it. He still didn't get it. But there are other reasons for the bad press and reasons that I think they just never seem to have gotten any of his points very well, or at least if they did get them, they didn't walk them out in their life very well. And I think that's a whole lot like you and I, right? We understand, but in all of our understanding about Jesus, we still don't get it, do we? Sometimes we just fall down big time. Now, why do you think that is? I think we're human beings, and I'm not giving the big pass there with that statement. I'm just saying the truth is we really are human beings. Jesus made his church out of human beings. And these 12 had more or less in them the same mixture that you and I have in us. We have that same mixture of intelligence and stupidity. (laughs) Cowardice and guts to fight. Selfishness and, and radical generosity at times. Openness of heart. And then some sort of a damn stubbornness that we just can't get over. You realize that's who Jesus made the church out of. That's the material that he used. And I think it's a point worth remembering. Uh, I think it's also a point worth remembering that even after Jesus made human beings into the church, and, and this is another point that I want you to grasp. After Jesus used human beings to make the church, guess what? They kept on being Human beings. They continued to be human beings. They actually, now these 12 I'm talking about, they knew Jesus as their personal friend and they sat at his feet and they listened to him speak and they ate with him and they tramped the countryside with him and they sat around fires with him and they they witnessed his miracles. And man, that should make a guy a hero, right? (coughs) But they just kept on being human. Same strengths. Most of the same weaknesses. But I also think it's probably worth remembering uh, at this point too. (coughs) Pardon me. That becoming the church. Remember Jesus made the church out of these 12. That becoming the church was not their idea. Are you following me here? It really wasn't their idea. It was Jesus' idea. It was Jesus who made them the church. And they didn't come together like any like-minded group here would come together. Uh, like a bunch of guys would gather, gathered, you know, with a, something in mind of forming a softball team or 
or there'd be a, a group that gets together because they want to lobby so that teachers' salaries will be raised. Or, you know, it wasn't a group like that. Jesus just grabbed them up and made the church out of them. They came together because Jesus wanted them to come together. They came together because of that. And that's exactly what the Greek word ecclesia and that's the word from which we get our word church. It means those who have been called out. Just the way that the original 12 were called out of fishing or called out of tax collecting. He just called them out. Called them out of running a restaurant or running a laundromat or whatever it happened to be involved in at the time. But here's another point I want to make. When Jesus called them out... They seem to have gone right on working at pretty much whatever they've been working at before. That's the big point. Have you got it? When Jesus called these guys out, when he called people out in the New Testament, they seem to have gone on doing pretty much what they were doing before. Which means that he didn't so much call them out of their ordinary lives as he called them out to believing that ordinary life is not ordinary. When Jesus comes into us, ordinary life no longer becomes ordinary. It becomes extraordinary. Jesus said it this way. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. So, I guess what I'm saying is that life, even at its most monotonous, Anybody ever just feel like uh, their work is just mind-numbing? They feel like, anybody in here ever feel like uh, what I'm doing is way beneath what I'd like to be doing? Okay, the kingdom of heaven, and Jesus used this, the kingdom of heaven really is like that treasure that's buried in the field somewhere. Four years ago, I lost my favorite, my favorite pocket knife. It was a 50-year-old Boker tree brand knife. It had dark wooden handles, carbon steel blade, none of that, none of that cheap stainless stuff, you know. I lost my favorite knife. Um... And I have to tell you, I actually went before the Lord because I thought, man, I really have an unholy connection with that knife. <laughs> it means it means way too much to me. <laughs> I went on. Life went on. About a year ago, Heather lost her phone. And we tore the house apart looking for Heather's phone. You know, it's funny. The family wasn't interested to help me look for my knife. But, <laughs> but they tore the house apart looking for Heather's phone. And in the midst of looking for Heather's phone, guess what I found? I found my pocket knife. <laughs> and I rejoiced. And I went to the winery and I got the best bottle of wine I had. And we opened it up and we celebrated because this thing that had been lost was now found. And, and I was finally complete again, okay? Okay, listen. The kingdom of heaven is like that pocket knife. We did find Heather's phone, by the way. The kingdom of heaven is like that pocket knife or that phone. Hidden 
in plain sight. It's just underneath the surface somewhere all the time. It didn't poof into thin air. The kingdom of heaven is there. The kingdom of heaven is here. If we just had the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the wits to understand, we would know that the kingdom of God in the sense of holiness and goodness and beauty, it is as close to us as breathing it's as close to us as, as crying. It's as close to us as our own heart. The kingdom of God is where we belong. It's home. And whether we realize it or not, I believe that every beating heart in here craves, is homesick for the kingdom of God. Okay, back to why church matters, okay? Jesus used these 12 to start his church. They're not ordinary any more than life itself is ordinary. They're extraordinary people because life is extraordinary. And the extraordinariness of it is what Jesus calls the kingdom of God. And in the kingdom of God, listen, in the kingdom of God, we all belong to each other just like members of a family. When you come to Jesus, he fills you with himself and you become the part of a diverse family. And you can't get away from that any more than you can get away from your connectedness to your own family. So you can move across the country or across the world from your own family and you still have the same DNA. You're still family. Now let's move on. Can we get the passage of scripture back up? I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you can know the hope to which he's called you. Now, I want to spend just a couple more minutes here talking about the hope to which he's called us. When I talked about the, the apostles just not getting it, I think our problem is that we usually just don't get it. But when you, and I love the way Adam puts this, if you'll just turn one or two degrees toward Jesus, he accepts that invitation instantly. <laughs> You don't have to under, you don't have to be able to quote the you know all the books of the Bible and you, and you don't have to understand all the scripture and here's a big thing that'll really set some people on their edge you don't even have to believe all the scripture if you just turn your heart a little toward Jesus he comes in and he fills you with himself and here we're going to hear Paul talk about what he puts in us I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Take a deep breath, okay? Here's what he gives you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Okay, this is not a fear. This is real. This is Jesus himself coming into us. And this is even more powerful. 
That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly father. Are you beginning to get this? When you turn your heart a little toward Jesus, the same power, the same love, the same energy that raised Jesus from the dead. Remember, he was stone dead, not a little bit dead. He wasn't in a coma. He was cold and maybe even started that, that old body, maybe even started to smell after three days. And the power that was exerted to raise him out of there is the same power that comes into you when you turn your heart a little bit toward Jesus. When we begin to understand who we are and what God's placed in us, then we can begin to act like really the family that God intended us to be. The kingdom of God cannot be fully expressed. The kingdom of God cannot be completely expressed in any one person other than Jesus. Okay, follow me here just for a minute. The kingdom of God, can, it was and is fully expressed in Jesus. But the kingdom of God cannot be fully and completely expressed in any one person now. We all carry parts of the kingdom that are unique to God's expression through us. In other words, we're that wacky family. <laughs> we are the group that has the crazy cousin and the weird uncle. And why are we that? I mean, that's the reason, because each of us carries a unique part of the kingdom of heaven, that's the reason that we don't want to clone each other and we don't want to try to be like so-and-so. We want to be a full expression of what God has placed in us. So go ahead, connect to your quirkiness. <laughs> it's an expression of the kingdom of God that God has in you. That is an expression of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. So, here we go. Why does church matter? Why does church matter? Because you matter. Church only matters because you matter. Fred Rogers was right, wasn't he? Jesus lives in you. And, and, and please grasp this, if you will. And I know we're talking to an audience of people here, but take this just as personal as you can, okay? I wish we were talking one-on-one -on -one together. Jesus lives in you. You are the church. You are the church. You are not a reasonable facsimile on your best day. You are the church. You are the church even on days, uh, you're the church on days when you haven't cussed out your boss. But even on the days we do, you're still the church.
Can you receive that? You are the church. Even on the day, you know, you you don't just have to not burn a joint or not look at porn to be the church. If you've turned your heart toward Jesus, you are the church. And let me take a side note here. Any of those things which are detrimental to our character are detrimental because Jesus knows that those just aren't the best things for us. He's not trying to smack us and he doesn't deprive the church from us because of that. He just knows what's absolutely best for us. And he places himself within us and makes us to be the church. He really does live inside of you. One of the quirkinesses that I carry, and if you've ever been to a party or a gathering with me of, of a lot of people, if I'm standing talking to someone and someone else comes up, one of my little quirkinesses is I'll go, Alex, do you know, to make a long story short, I'll introduce people a hundred times. <laughs> and I just think that I just want people to be included and you know, I try to be inclusive and bring everybody in together, okay? I don't think it's a bad thing. It's a little quirky, but I just like to introduce people, make sure that everybody standing in the circle knows each other. So I'm going to lean for a couple of minutes on my own quirkiness. And I want to introduce every heart in this room I want to introduce every heart in this room to the Jesus who was the eight pound, six ounce baby in the manger, who was the 12 year old confounding all the Pharisees in the temple, who was the one who told Peter to cool it. I know what I'm doing here. Who was the one who was willing, even though he didn't really want to? to give himself up so that all of our sinful behavior would be covered under his blood. And I want to introduce you to the one who ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God to make himself available that every heart that turned even a degree toward him, he would go and live in. So, we're going to stand together and I'm going to ask you, and this may be a little directive, but, you know, that's okay. I'm one of the old guys in the room. I guess we can direct a little bit. Okay. I would invite you just to expose your heart before Jesus. Are you ready? Just open your heart. My son-in-law, Justin, taught me something about 10 years ago. We have the ability to speak to our heart just like we have the ability to speak to one of our children or whatever, okay? So if you'll repeat after me, heart, Heart. know Jesus. Jesus. And now, Jesus, I ask that you would come in a way that maybe you have never come to any heart in this room. 
Would you begin to introduce yourself to the hearts in this room? Would you say things to the hearts that maybe they've never heard? Would you warm places in the heart that maybe have gone cold? Would you shatter any preconceived notions that our hearts may have about what this is supposed to look like? And Father, any place where we have disqualified ourselves, would you call us back? Would you call us back? Would you pour in to our hearts more and more and more? And would you allow us to know our truest identity that we are the church and we matter and we matter and we matter? I'm going to ask you to repeat one more thing after me. Would you repeat, I am the church, and I really matter. If our ministry team will come forward, we do not want you to leave this room if you are sick in your body or if you have a place in your heart that needs to be prayed for. We don't want you to leave the room. We have all sorts of people here who are willing to pray for you. But before we do that, I'm going to pray a little prayer. And then as it's Thanksgiving month, we're all going to sing the doxology together. Okay? So let me pray. And then we're going to sing the doxology. And then we'll pray for your hearts if you so need that. Father, we love you. We ask in the name of Jesus that you would reveal yourself more and more and more to us. And Father, where we have uh, religiously tried to pursue you, we want to lay that down and we want to know you as you are. Hallelujah. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Thank you again for stopping by the podcast at the Vineyard Church in Campbellsville, Kentucky. If you'd like to keep up with what's happening here at the Vineyard, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, peace to you.